the message of the gospel or the words of the gospel, which is what he thinks is really at issue with, uh, with Gauguin. Uh, so responds with the parable of the sower and places the, if there is this vision that happens in this painting, puts it on our side of the tree with this peasant sower moving into our space, casting these seeds, presumably into the space that we're standing on. And the question of the, paint, of the parable as with the painting is, but how do I receive this? heart does one have is the central question. Um, not primarily what is, what is, um, what is uh, um, believable or verifiable or whatever about the vision. Uh, and so what you have here is, I think, a theological disagreement between a conflicted Catholic and a conflicted Protestant. <laughs> and it's awesome. And they, they argue stuff uh, in their short but extremely volatile uh, relationship. And so if, if Van Gogh puts the sower on our side in the foreground, then he puts into the background on the other side the farmer's house into which the, the harvest will eventually be brought in. And that's a very common uh, strategy for Van Gogh, that the distance is, is for Gauguin often metaphysical, there's a metaphysical distance or ontological distance between the here and the now, and that's his primary problem. For Van Gogh, it's more of an eschatological difference, a distance, the temporal distance, the here and the there. So repeatedly in the painting, you get the here and the there, uh, the, the thing that one vaguely hopes for, or the here and the, the then. Um, so we, uh, we look at them a bit. Um, because we're taking the time period uh, 1800 on, uh, when we move to the uh, chapter on, the, um, on uh, Northern Europe, we begin with uh, Caspar W. Friedrich, whose work is sometimes interpreted as a, as a kind of beginning of this the Secular Two project, in which he very often depicts um, religious figures on the left. It's maybe a self-portrait uh, of himself as a Capuchin monk standing on the seashore in front of the abyss, the kind of unnameable, unspeakable abyss, um, or uh, uh, monks in front of broken down uh, churches, the structures, the human logical and religious structures broken down and brought, brought, uh, um, brought to the ground in the same way that the human body and the human person is brought down to the ground. There's a burial going on in the bottom of that painting. But Friedrich was a pietist. I mean, he was a really devout pietist, actually, um, and was very influenced by a, a very prominent pastor preacher uh, at the time, who, uh, and, and for both of them, and he probably had, probably had interactions with Schleiermacher, for those of you who are into that, uh, 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 and was very influenced by Schleiermacher. And the concerns here are not with the absence of God, but the uncontainability of God. Uh, it is, a, it is a, a project interested in confronting 
the un, uh, uh, in trying to name or experience the failure of naming the unnameable, uh, uh, visualizing the unvisualizable, uh, containing in religious structures that which cannot be contained in religious structures. Ultimately, it's a it's a profoundly project that comes out of not a, a kind of enlightenment um, uh, grid, I don't think, but out of the Protestant heritage. I mean, this is just thoroughly, it thoroughly comes out of uh, Calvin and Luther, and we make that case in uh, uh, chapter four, and I won't go into it too much further. But that sets us up to continue thinking about the way that this same uh, uh, discourse runs through, that is really a theological discourse, runs through uh, so many other Northern European artists, and including Van Gogh. We go back to Van Gogh because he not only worked in France, he was Dutch, he was Dutch Reformed. Uh, his, his dad was a Dutch Reformed pastor, and he was training to be a Dutch Reformed pastor. He's Dutch, he's very Protestant. So we go back to him because he really um, contributes to this narrative, and, and I think it's funded by this narrative. And uh, he reflects on so many Friedrich, uh, Friedrichian themes. Uh, here he's thinking about this uh, Catholic church that, uh, uh, I think a 12th century Catholic church that had fallen into ruin and been torn down. And so, uh, of course, where you have a church that gets torn down, it becomes a cemetery because there are so many people buried in the floor. And so it's a cemetery, and the last vestige of this church is this defunct bell tower that is gradually dilapidating. They have taken the spire off of it, and it is this trunk uh, of, of the church. Uh, it's a, it, and, it can, and it has often been interpreted as that, a kind of failure of the church. Yeah, in some ways, but that, that is in a Protestant uh, kind of framework, the failure of the church doesn't mean rejection of God or even rejection of the church. It is more a meditation connected to that which is unnameable and transcends the structures of the church and the structures of uh, the, the religious structures. And this just runs throughout Van Gogh. I won't kind of belabor the point, um, but Van Gogh over and over again is, a, he's a theologian. I think one of, I think this, a lot of the central questions for Van Gogh are theological rather than just artistic or formal or something like that, which is, or, or psychological, right? Which is how, how they often get talked about. In this painting, which is very famous and almost never interpreted, right? Um, I mean, culture. Uh, he's painting this painting in a Catholic town in the south of France. Uh, we know from his drawings and from the town that in the middle of this town is a Catholic church that is stoned. Uh, Van Gogh, for one reason or another, removes that church and replaces it with a different church, namely a kind of conspicuously Protestant reformed church. Right? <laughs> Why? He's not painting the town. Own wrestling match with God. I think is, is very often what he's doing. This is the central question uh, for him. The to what extent does the church point him toward or away from God? Um, and he rhymes the, the shape of that tiny church with this um, cypress tree that's on the left that then goes to refer 
so he has these two things pointing him up into this throbbing, windy sky. Uh, I think as, and he, des he described the, the impulse to paint the starry sky, this painting and one before it, as feeling a terrible need of religion, is what he put in his letters to his brother. I feel a terrible need of, shall I say the word, religion. So I go outside and I paint the stars. Right? Okay. Uh, so Van Gogh. We, there's much more to say about Van Gogh. I think he's one of the. I think he's one of the more interesting. I think he's one of the most most interesting visual theologians of the 19th century. Uh, uh, from there, we move on. Talk about some other. Um, uh, Northern modernists, including Mondrian. Mondrian was written in about the Dutch Reformed home. Um, he, was, he was actually, um, when he was in art school, he lived in the home of one of the best friends of Abraham Piper. Uh, this kind of massive uh, figure at who represents really in a lot of ways neo-Calvinism, the beginning of neo-Calvinist thought. Uh, and uh, uh, Mondrian was in that circle and was running with uh, um, uh, the publisher. He lived with the publisher of the main publisher of Kuiper and, and was really exposed to these, um, the kind of ferment of, of uh, neo-Calvinist thought. And for him, once again, I mean, it's not, it's just, it's such a, it's such a repeated motif. These artists uh, picturing the outside of churches, picturing churches from the outside. And this is not a kind of, I don't think, a scrutinizing or rejection, but a questioning. It is the experience of the fragilization, the secular three. And they're, and they're trying to figure out what their relationship is to of the church, and they paint it over and over again. Um, uh, so a lot of Mondrian's uh, early paintings are religious, are Christian paintings. Um, uh, some, somewhere around 1900, he, he experiences a crisis of faith, and eventually uh, uh, really, really becomes involved in the Theosophical Society, which uh, is this kind of, um, is this, I, A lot of religions from the East and so forth. On the one hand, and science, uh, biological, uh, evolutionary theory, and so forth, uh, physics, and trying to uh, uh, figure out what it means to believe in, in a context that takes both Eastern religion and science seriously. But within that larger project, there are all sorts of things going on in theosophy. Some people coming some people, they're just uh, enormous multiplicity. So uh, in interesting and important studies could be done to figure out what theosophy really meant for a lot of these artists. Uh, for Mondrian, to kind of put that aside, it's interesting to me that as he moves toward total abstraction, and the rest of this chapter is really devoted to abstraction, the, the major things that he chooses to focus on is the facade of the church, 
which he paints over and over again and kind of dismantles into pure uh, verticals and horizontals, and the sea, the ocean, uh, which is for him a kind of thoroughly uh, Protestant, northern Protestant um, theme. Both of them, as he said, uh, cho he chose them for th because they were images of the immutable, of the eternal, the horizon of the sea in horizontal infinite expanse, and the church with an infinite vertical expanse. And he gradually distills these two images, or these two uh, kind of motifs, into uh, grids, pure grids, that he said was a way of working back towards some kind of eternal, uh, e eternal um, structure in which everything um, is given. So he would say all curved lines eventually, or the vertical and the horizontal, are the axes in which all curved lines are possible. So he resolves all of them into pure verticals and horizontals. Uh, and all color is resolvable to the primaries. And so he gradually works into these totally abstract paintings, um, not as a materialist manifesto, as they're sometimes understood, pure paint, pure materiality, but as spiritual manifestos. He thought these paintings to be eternal. <laughs> Whatever you think about that, that is a story that accounted for in, to interpret. Okay, I'm going to scoot over to talk about just a handful of uh, in the book, and then we'll, uh, we can uh, uh, discuss some questions, take some questions. Uh, there's a really good section on Kandinsky in this book, uh, for those of you who like Kandinsky. He's often in, um, uh, told in art history as the first or one of the first to move to total abstraction. And he's often understood as making that move in relation to music, the pure formal kind of qualities of music. Painting has those uh, abilities as well. You know, music has a pitch and color, you know, color of pitch and so forth. Um, uh, uh, and th that's all true, but what is often not discussed is that he gets to these uh, paintings um, by way of the Book of Revelation. So he's totally preoccupied with the Book of Revelation uh, in the time period leading up to these abstract paintings, in which he's <clears throat> he's he's arguing for a paint for painting to no longer be preoccupied with picturing the way that things look but composing, making compositions that cause the soul to resonate, rather than looking like other things. They are, they're strictly themselves, and they cause, cause the soul to resonate. But he believed that one has to make these kinds of paintings from subject matter that make, causes one's own soul to resonate. So you can't make abstract painting about nothing, he thought. It has to come from somewhere, from some kind of feeling of dread or joy or boredom or something. It has to come from somewhere. And so for him, it was the book of Revelation very often. He painted over and over again the last judgment, the blowing of the trumpets, uh, and so forth. You can see in this image uh, the angels at the top blowing the trumpets, announcing the, uh, the, uh, the 
judgment, announcing the revealing, the apocalypse. Uh, toward the top, you have the crumbling towers of Babylon that are shaking with the earthquake. And down below, you have the saints emerging from the uh, grave, the resurrection of the dead. You have this figure that seems to be offering up his and then all these saints who are uh, uh, carrying their candles. And so, right, it's, it's, it's the apocalypse. And it is that imagery that he is distilling into these really important, really influential early abstract paintings. And once you see the, that, you see, oh yeah, it's, you know, here are the saints with the candles. Here's the, the towers of Babylon. You have the angels the trumpets with this sound that is like a hideous black void whipping through the landscape and so forth. Now that still has to be interpreted. Uh, what does that mean to do that? Uh, but what, and, and we do some of that in the book, but part of what we're arguing just on a ground level is that that is really underinterpreted in our art histories because we've been operating on this pure abstraction. Even when people like Kandinsky released, this was like his first big painting, this is like six by 10 feet, it's huge, and he releases it at the same time that he releases this book called On the Spiritual in Art, which he's eccentrically sorting some of this stuff out. Uh, skating over top of just a few other artists, we, we have a chapter on uh, Russia, Russian modernism, uh, and we look at Malevich, among others, who's often interpreted as a kind of nihilist. Um, he very famously presented, probably most famous painting was the Black Square, which he presented in the corner, which for a Russian Orthodox person, they would immediately recognize that's the holy corner. That's, that's an icon. Um, and you, you get a sense of, of how this is meant as a, as a kind of holy icon. But it's often interpreted as a kind of icon of vacancy, the death of God, the absence of God. Um, and there's, there's legitimate reason to think that uh, until you start reading Malevich. <laughs> he doesn't seem to think of those terms. I mean, Malevich is like bonkers. Like, if you want a great, a great read, read some of his uh, manifestos. They're just phenomenal and crazy and wonderful. Um, but for Malevich, if you kind of put all of his writing together, what he's interested he in here is not the, the vacancy of the idea of God, but the unrepresentability of God. He's, a, he's fundamentally an apophatic theologian. It's, it's about the unnameability, unrepresentability, the, the failure of our speech uh, rather than of our images rather than um, a kind of assertion about the emptiness of God. Whatever you think about apophatic theology, uh, uh, Malevich is one and I think should, should be interpreted as such. Um, he, just to uh, scoot over the top of uh, Malevich a bit, he, uh, during the kind of most intense years of, of war communism, he starts writing, giving these lectures and writing these books uh, about, that eventually resulted in this publication called God is Not Cast Down, 
in which he's, he's arguing that um, it's, I think, against the Soviet, um, the uh, Soviet uh, secularization, <laughs> secularization too, uh, is arguing God cannot be cast down because God has to be identified with the giving of being itself. The idea of casting down God or the vacancy of God is an incoherent idea for him. It's a sort of language change that falls apart. I mean, Malevich was, from beginning to end, a mystic. And at the end of his life, he goes back to uh, figurative paintings that are wild and terrible. I mean, some of his paintings are just awful and wonderfully awful. Um, but they're, they're uh, and these aren't awful. I think these are really wonderful. Um, uh, but they're, they're consistently mystical. Uh, so he's got these praying mystics with orthodox crosses for faces and hands and feet. I mean, he's doing this, he's, you know, he's doing this in the Soviet Union. It didn't go over well. <laughs> Um, we have, a, there are a few, I think, I think we're making in really interesting historical contributions throughout the book, but there are a couple places where I think that, like, we're writing some things that I just have never, I've never read before, I can't find anywhere. Some of what we're doing in the book is just pulling up, a lot of what we're doing is just pulling out of the kind of corners of the academic discourse these things that are tucked away, they're in the academic discourse, they're just not in the canonical kind of histories. Uh, and just pulling them more into view. In a few places, I think we're doing some a pretty good historical uh, contribution. Uh, we have a section on Dada, uh, Zurich Dada, which if you want an example of nihilism, like a case study in nihilism, supposedly it's Dada. Except that the founder of Dada, a guy named Hugo Ball, um, grew up a very devout Catholic, went to college, uh, you know, became a, a, a Nietzschean anarchist, like as one does in college, you know. <laughs> um, and, uh, and starts the Dada uh, movement, uh, the, the Cabaret Voltaire is what they called it, that was this wildly disruptive um, uh, cabaret with these performances that reveled in the nonsensical and the noisy and, and the the non-linear, uh, it, was, it was purposefully anti-aesthetic and anti-art in a lot of ways. Um, and so it was often interpreted in those terms. But after uh, Ball left the Cabaret Voltaire, he reconverted to Catholicism and started writing books on Byzantine Christianity, uh, specifically focusing on the Desert Fathers. He was really preoccupied with the Desert Fathers. Um, and published his journal through the uh, Dada years that uh, almost certainly was redacted to some extent, but publishes his journal that's fascinating called Flight Out of Time. <laughs> it's great. Um, in which he is uh, kind of walking us through in some ways the theological underpinnings of the Dada movement, at least in Zurich, that this revolt uh, was in at the it was in Switzerland in the in the kind of height of world 
was an objection to the rationalism that was, uh, that was um, plummeting uh, Europe into World War I. And uh, there's, a, there's a lot we could go into, I won't. Um, but if you start rereading what actually happened They would read from the Desert Fathers in the Cabaret Voltaire, <laughs> and pretty much any form of Christian mysticism, the, uh, it, it appeared. Um, Ball did several performances that were um, uh, religiously inflected and oriented, including most famously his Magical Bishop, which I won't describe, you have to read the book, it's, it's, that's a really good section. Um, uh, the magical bishop. He performed. They performed a nativity play that uh, was uh, Dada, and it was wildly disruptive, but left everyone uh, kind of uh, still, silent at the end of it. And it ends at the nativity play in the middle of uh, the summer in uh, in World War One, uh, and it ends with hammering and nailing and screaming of of Christ on the cross. Uh, and, I mean, there's some interesting stuff going on in Dada that needs a further account. Um, we also uh, talk, and real briefly, just to wrap this up, uh, we also uh, look at a number of North American modernists, <clears throat> including John Cage, who's famous or infamous. 433 is a musical composition of four minutes and 33 seconds of best, right? Um, and that's often 